You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to this breakfast session at the Nuffield Summit in Dorking, where we've had a day yesterday of um, animated conversations about health policy around the world, but mainly about the UK. And we heard from Andrew Lansley, who came to tell us that everything was going to be wonderful. This session is intended to look at what will be uh, life will be like after the bill and we've got people around the table having breakfast and others listening around the room having breakfast. Uh, we've got Nigel Edwards of the King's Fund and KPMG. We've got Judith Smith, Head of Policy at the Nuffield Trust. We've got Gareth Goodyear, Chief Executive of Cambridge University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. David Bennett, Head of the NHS's new beefed up regulator Monitor. We've got Helen Thomas, Medical Director of Sentinel Commissioning Group in Plymouth, Penny Dash of McKinsey's, James Morrow, a GP in Cambridge, Claire Gerarda, Chair of the RCGP. We've got Simon Stevens, former advisor to Tony Blair and Chief Executive of Global Health United Health Group. We've got Alistair McClellan, editor of the Health Services Journal, and Paul Corrigan, who worked with Tony Blair and now describes himself as a blogger. So if I could start um, with uh, the person to my left, who is David Bennett, head of the Trust Monitor, eating bacon and eggs. Um, David, do you think life will be very different after the bill? Um, I, I shouldn't think there'll be huge changes. And I have to talk from a monitor, so in particular sort of provider perspective on this. I don't think there will be huge changes from day one. I think one of the things that often gets lost in all the talk about this bill is that in most respects what, what's happening on the provider front is, is most certainly a continuation of what's happening today and in, in many ways it's, it's about taking things which are being done today and just putting them on a different footing, in particular putting them into monitor uh, or the commissioning board, um, which means they put on a more statutory footing, uh, they are uh, in some senses more formalised, but they are things that are happening today, whether you're talking about pricing or about the principles and rules of cooperation and competition. So I don't think you'll see huge changes, certainly on our side of things, from day one. Okay. Helen Thomas, you're involved in commissioning and trying to sort out a level of integrated care. What do you think about the future after the bill? I think after the bill, it would be really exciting to get a move on, actually, because we feel like we've been stalling, waiting for edicts to come down from the Department of Health, which don't come, or they do, and they don't, we don't like them, and we try to fight them at the moment. I think once we've got a line in the sand, it will be really useful to get on and do it. We're particularly looking forward to working with our secondary care colleagues, because clinicians, once you get them all together, do tend to agree on things. And the only thing that engages my clinicians uh, locally is talking about patient care and improving it. Gareth Goodyear, as a Chief Executive of a major foundation trust. Um, I, I, I still think personally that the uh, budget challenges are having far greater impact upon the health system than uh, the, the reforms. Um, whilst I'm personally not really in favour of GP commissioning because of the conflict of interest I perceive, uh, I'm for clinically-led commissioning. and. In fact, the changes going on in Cambridge are very positive because we find the discussions with the GPs are much more fruitful and sensible than with our previous commissioners. So I would agree with the previous comment that I, I wish this was kind of speeded up because we're in limbo and I, I frankly would prefer the general practitioners to uh, have the authority now. 
And we've got one of your general practitioners here, James Morrow. What do you feel, James? Um, continuing the love-in with the acute trust, um, I think that we are developing excellent relationships with the acute trust, and I think the opportunities for service redesign and new models of working are enormous. And I think that's irrespective of the bill going through or otherwise. I think that you know the, the dangers, as I see it from the bill, are that the increased tiers of bureaucracy, central control, and regulation may actually stifle some of the innovations that we're trying to do. As Don Berwick said yesterday, you know, that the danger of regulating for the peripheries is that you stifle the majority in the middle, that actually tight regulation for the very poor performers is a barrier to the, the majority getting on and doing things well. And I think that's where it's going to require very intelligent <coughs> interpretation from, from Monitor uh, amongst other bodies. Penny, Dash, you've been looking at a lot of the structures in the NHS over, over many years. What do you feel about that issue of bureaucracy after the bill? How, how is that going to unfold? Um, I think hard to tell. I'm not sure it will feel any, particularly any different from what we've had historically. I think far more important is, as others have started to allude to, that the, the key challenges facing this healthcare system and healthcare systems all around the world are going to remain, and in general those are three things. One, the need to redesign the system to better look after people with long-term conditions and older people, largely outside of hospitals. Secondly, to dramatically improve quality of care to ensure that every provider is as good as the best, um, and to then improve beyond that. And thirdly, to have far more efficient services. So, so that's going to continue, those will continue to be challenges. I think the very positive thing, which is already happening, so I don't think it's going to be different, particularly at any point in time, is GPs starting to sit around the table and actually starting to really push some of the quite difficult decisions which um, perhaps have been harder to make historically. Um, and so that bit of the um, changes, I think, will potentially will be quite uh, positive. Claire Gerardo, do you see that as a positive future? Yes, I mean, I'm, I think it's... I think the positive bit of all of this has actually catalyzed GPs re-engaging with planning services for their patients and, and talking across professional groups. But a figure came to me today, which I'm sure all of you health people know, which is the top 10 uh, costs, activity costs, account for £34 billion. And the top 10 in terms of activity account for about £25 million. And the only way of, of reducing that, that 34 billion, I suspect a lot of that isn't due to the ageing population. In fact, looking at the HRGs, it isn't. It's due to boring things, accidents, smoking, obesity and alcohol. And, and I think we've got to, in a way, start to, if we're going to make this work, which we desperately have to make this work, we've got to sort of start getting the message correct, not just the rhetoric, not just, you know, this is an ageing population, we've always had an ageing population, we've got to start investing in community services, public health, general practice, because that is the only way of reducing, and none of that stuff, by the way, can be, we can't do three organ failure in our GP practice, so this isn't about <laughs> shifting care outside the hospital, this is about preventing that activity from ever having to happen in the first place. So that's the message, and that's where I would love to start working, you know, this isn't about which statin you're going to prescribe, because that is nothing, there's going to be, you know, in terms of the budget, irrelevant. So from the college's point of view, it'd be absolutely wonderful to start addressing some of the big issues, as long as the systems and structures around that, around us, allow us to address the big issues, and, uh, and we'll start doing what we have to do. 
Judith Smith, from the point of view of the Nuffield Trust and policy issues, how do you see the future unfolding? I feel sometimes as though we've got two parallel universes, actually. One uh, with all this noise and discussion about the health and social care bill. But on the other hand, the NHS well into implementing the proposals that we've known about now for nearly two years since the uh, white paper came out. So I guess um, the, the, originally I, I was a health manager and my sense is, is what the service desperately needs is certainty now, particularly the managerial community and the clinical leadership community needs um, that sort of um, assurance really that the direction is set and then able to get on with the really serious business of implementation because I feel that whilst we're distracted to some extent worrying about the detail of the legislation we're perhaps not putting sufficient attention into um, having clinicians managers and others working with the embryonic NHS commissioning board and supporting others in the provider and commissioning community to really make the changes happen in the way that is going to achieve the things that others have been saying around the table so for me that's the absolutely critical bit um, moving forward to really focus on implementation because there are lots of things in legislation at the moment that don't actually get enacted in practice and the devil really is for me in implementation. Alison McLennan, you were in touch with the managerial community and uh, voiced many of their concerns. How do you feel things will turn well, out? We like, to, we like to think the HSJ audience is, is broader than that. It's the, it's the leadership community of, of the health service, but a lot of those are, of course, from the managerial background. Um, I'd say four things uh, very briefly. Um, everyone's asked for certainty. It ain't arriving anytime soon. Um, uh, just because the bill is passed, there's a huge sway of the secondary legislation. There's a huge range of guidelines it's the, uh, um, uh, that are going to roll out. And the commissioning board's um, uh, guidance to um, uh, commissioners uh, isn't it? Well, can't come out until after the mandate. The mandate won't arrive until um, December. So there's a huge there's as much uncertainty in front of us as there is behind us. Um, nobody's talked about commissioning support. I think that that is going to that is going to be as important as CCGs themselves. Everyone talked about CCGs having an impact, and I believe the best of them will have uh, an impact. But they won't. It won't. It won't be felt until the other side of the election in a major sort of way. That's how long it takes to make an impact in the. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, in a system as complex as a health system. And one final thing, after the bill, Francis. Well, and another bill. Okay, sorry, so, um, uh, um, so after the bill um, has to be done, dusted, I think by May the 9th, um, um, and at the, either in the last week of May or the first week of, of June, that's exclusively reeled in HSJ, the... Um, uh, uh, Shameless. Um, uh, uh, go get those plugs in when you can. Um, the, the, um, the, uh, the Robert Francis's report into, um, uh, into the inquiry, public inquiry into mid-staff's care failings will be published, of which there are a significant number of um, uh, organisational... Um, uh, Red, uh, possibly legislative and personal consequences may follow from that. Thank you. Paul Corrigan, your thoughts? Um, I think the bill will, uh, I think people are saying, will the bill give a direction? And I think the interesting thing, it will give at least two um, in different directions. Uh, because there are two different directions in the bill. I mean, the original bill was a localising bill. 
And then after the pause, it became a centralising bill. So now it is both a localising and a centralising bill. Um, and so there'll be two sets of implementations that'll go on. Um, and let's face it, the people that are doing the centralising implementation are pretty good at power. Um, and so they're going to be, and they are already rolling out a great deal of centralised power. And so this is the biggest nationalisation of commissioning we've seen. Um, uh, and then there will be localisation going on. And as people have said, in many of those areas where localisation is well organised, there will be very significant impacts there. But you've got two very different things in one bill because of the politics that's run, what's gone on in the last 15 months. Nigel Edwards, where do you see things going? The, the general consensus, which I've heard here, which I think I agree with, is that the, the actual passing of the bill is just, a, is just an event. It's probably not that significant in the sense that we're already doing a significant amount uh, of it. And many of the problems that, uh, that we're facing don't seem to immediately map back to things in the bill. I was very struck yesterday listening to Andrew Lansley giving his explanation of what the problems we face are, was trying to then track back uh, those problems to the instrument, the policy instruments that he's developing. Um, and uh, I, I must confess that I was struggling. Um, and so there's a, there's, there's a third parallel world in which people are actually dealing with a whole set of problems that don't relate to the bill at all. And I do fear that you know, there's Quite, we, talk, we must get on with implementation. Well, actually, we must get on with the, with the fact that we've got an increasing number of hospitals which are struggling and uh, are, are in trouble. Uh, it's increasingly clear across the developed world that care coordination is a major challenge and that we're failing at it uh, quite significantly in, in quite a lot of places. Uh, the, the, the money is an issue. I agree with Alistair's diagnosis. Francis is a big deal. Um, that's going to That may change vast amounts more, much more quickly than the bill would be. And our experience with this sort of reform, both in in this country and ours is that, is that you know these so-called cataclysmic reforms actually only look cataclysmic when you look back 10 years afterwards because the first couple of years generally um, it doesn't appear that much is happening there's not a lot of space for new entrants in the market um, many of the bits of machinery aren't yet fully in place uh, we don't know even how many of the CCGs will be will be fully authorized uh, by the by, by the end of this uh, by the end of this process and I do I do fear a bit uh, that we get hooked into this very interesting debate about the bill but as, as, as Penny and a number of others have said actually um, the, the the bigger problems remain um, and it's not immediately clear clear that we've got the machinery to tackle them and in fact in quite a few places we've dismantled the machinery that we would have traditionally used to tackle them. Simon Stevens, I've heard it said that the NHS is unreformable. You tried it and Andrew Landley's trying it and what do you think will be the result this time around? Well, as a matter of history it's clearly not true that the NHS is unreformable. It's been reformed, inverted commas, many times. But the NHS loves to put itself on a couch. And when we do that, it's easy to forget that actually the NHS has got a lot going for it. It's got a lot of uh, fundamental design advantages. Uh, net public satisfaction is at an all-time high. And over the last decade or so, there have been huge improvements in the responsiveness of care to patients. Waiting times are at an all-time low, although there are clearly pressures there. There have been massive improvements in population health. All of that said, the challenge right now is to think about what it will take to future-proof the NHS for the phase ahead, and that will obviously be done during a period of the deepest and most sustained budget crunch that the NHS has had since 1948. Will changing some of the intermediate tiers of management make an impact profoundly on that? Uh, possibly. But I think there are some more fundamental challenges, and a number of people have talked about those. I agree with Alistair that the mid-staffs inquiry may be a pivot point for a conversation about the care of the 
majority of patients that the NHS is dealing with who are older, frailer, with multiple morbidities. And that will be the prism through which we will have the conversation, a national conversation potentially, about dignity and compassion and care. And it will be the prism through which a lot of the technical debates that people around this table like having will be refracted around the health and social care boundary, around uh, the primary community care interface, around the role of informal care. That will either be a missed opportunity or it will be a chance to talk about something <laughs> profound. Can I then just open it up to ask people a question that came up over dinner last night around how competition and, uh, will, will impact on the structure of services reconfiguration and whether uh, hospital trusts and indeed CCGs will indeed be allowed to fail and, and what, what that, how that will play out over, over, the, over the next few years. Gareth. Addenbrooke's won't be allowed to fail. It's my local hospital. (laughs) (laughs) I think in in many ways uh, hospitals are already in a form of competition. Uh, Where we never seem to focus is in the provision of community care and services and uh, general practices uh, forming commissioning groups which is uh, almost anti-competitive. So uh, I, I think from my point of view, I'd like to see a bit more competition in the community. And by definition, to have competition, you've got to have a slight excess of supply. At the moment, there are, there's no hope of having that excess of supply. I mean, it's, it's not easy to go and change your list uh, position. Uh, it's not easy to, to have a different provider of palliative care and so on. There is virtually no competition in the community provision. Penny, how would you see that being addressed, if you agree that's the answer? We tend to use the words competition advice and bland word, but actually you would potentially want to use it very differently for different services, and that sometimes gets forgotten. So for, for some of the more complex services, it would be very hard to envisage how you could introduce competition between or even things like ambulance services or complex cardiothoracic surgery and so on. You may, you may have individual hospitals... Um, essentially have to ensure that they have high quality care in order to do that and we have a pretty good system for doing that already. Um, whereas actually places that are more, much more amenable to competition, exactly as Gareth said, is more out of hospital care where there are far more providers, it's much more of a local service and so on. Um, and so the challenge really is how do we support that in a way which ensures continuity of service, ensures high quality care but really use competition to continue to drive that high quality care and, and drive efficiencies and that really ought to be where our collective focus should be. So Claire you talked earlier about the need for investing in primary care and do you see that as a mechanism for creating excess capacity that would allow greater competition on quality? Yes I do and I've said right from the outset that if, if this bill is to translate into what we need it has to translate into more GPs spending longer with their patients and their communities and we're not against competition, but at the, at the provider side, and actually what the college's uh, policy is, is around federations of practices, which are groups of practices drawing in uh, third sector, private sector, uh, into, into the federation to start dealing with some of the big issues that are facing us, such as end-of-life care, such as, as, as uh, out-of-hours care, such as pre-hospital care, so some of these big issues, and that's where we see the real change, and, and in a way... And again, I've not to discuss the politics of the bill, but it's been the wrong end of the telescope. 
because actually we need sensible commissioning supporting uh, supporting providers to reform so we can have competition we can then drive up standards between GPs and between what we would call federations and federations can be smaller or bigger depending on what on what footprint you, you want to, to do but with respect to GPs I mean, I've said this before, GPs are heaving under the workload at the moment, and, and uh, it's not because we're all off playing <coughs> golf at lunchtime that, you know, that your hospital activity has gone up. It's, I think we're all heaving. I think there's been an explosion, of, for one reason or another, of, of demand for healthcare, which is being translated into every aspect of our health service. So, and we're all sort of saying it's your fault, it's our fault. So, you know. James. Um, what we've failed to address really is that, that we've preserved the primary secondary care divide in ASPIC. That is, I think, anachronistic. That is not the way healthcare should be delivered and needed. A GP from the 1930s would recognise the system from today, and that cannot be right. And I think that my concern about CCGs is that it is cementing this relationship even further that primary care is a separate entity from secondary care. And I think it dodges the issue that actually for most patients, if you want to buy a can of baked beans, one doesn't go into do research and decide I'm going to go and buy baked beans from Tesco's and my ham from Waitrose. You choose the front entry point. Some people don't. Most people don't. Most people choose a single entry point and the competition is at the front end of the system. And by failing to address competition amongst GPs, by the, the bill bottling free competition by not abolishing practice boundaries, we're missing the trick, I think, that actually, and I know Claire will disagree, but I think we should have fundamentally competition at the front end, the consumer-facing, consumer experience bit. And actually that, I think, is where liberation, freedom, innovation and competition should be placed, is at the front end where patients make an informed decision. Gareth Goodyear. Well, just to come back, I'd liken the reform, I think, in the community to being the move from corner shops to supermarkets and having a blend of both. So we want to and are planning to move chemotherapy out into three GP practices. Now, you can't do that to all GP practices. And what we're finding is that the coalition of GPs commissioning, there tends to be some jealousy because necessarily we will put diagnostics and chemotherapy and so on in a few ambulatory care centres which will then offer perhaps you know 18 hour services and, and be quite a different, be like the major supermarket just out of the community versus the corner shop. They both have a role but there is a resistance when the coalition of GP commissioners sees that some of them are going to be winners and some of them are going to be losers. And that, to me, is the big issue. Can and I... I'd also say that not all community provision is general practice. Uh, and I think this country is absolutely hung up on the issue of this locality-based thing. I mean, you've got groups like Macmillan Nurses that do a fantastic job. And I'd almost see that uh, patients should have the choice of sort of Red Cross, Blue Cross, Green Cross nurses to do their provision, in other words, national organisations, but in your locality, that are often NGOs, charitable-based uh, organisations. A comment made at, at dinner last night was um, from one of the people on my table that uh, one of the problems with the CCGs is they won't be able to do anything strategic uh, in, uh, at, that high, at that more kind of... Uh, national regional level so for example stroke reconfiguration which I think people feel has been a great success would not have been um, possible uh, would, would not be possible in the future where CCGs are responsible for doing that 
Does anyone have thoughts on that? Whether I that's, think a... that's probably quite a deliberate uh, intention. I don't think the Secretary of State believes in planning. Um, I, I think he, he genuinely, he's probably alone in this in Europe, he genuinely believes that uh, the, these patterns of services will emerge uh, as an emergent property of individual decisions made by patients and GPs. And, <coughs> and he's plainly mistaken, um, uh, I'm afraid, because... Uh, the, 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 well, he, he believes in it, but he believes it to be a virtue as well. Yes, yeah. Uh, and actually, uh, you know, we, we know, because we have <coughs> plenty of examples both from this country, but even in Holland, uh, which is very uh, economically liberal now in terms of its, its view on health care, uh, the, uh, the, the ministers asked the insurance companies to do some strategic planning uh, to sort out issues like stroke and the centralisation of, of, of surgery. So uh, somehow the CCGs will <coughs> need to come together to work out how to do these. Now, let's hope they're better at collaboration than PCTs. Uh, uh, turned out uh, to be because it's uh, it's proved f to them they've suffered from the same problem that James has described uh, that Gareth was describing there but just at a bigger scale um, and there will be a temptation to be parochial which is probably why along with a whole set of other reasons about economies of scale across the whole of Europe payers are getting bigger we are the only country in Europe going in the opposite direction, and it could be that we've discovered something unique. Judith <laughs> <laughs> Smith. I agree absolutely with that, and I think what, I think what will be really interesting to um, look at a few years down the line is how far the clinical commissioning groups are clinical commissioning groups or clinical provision groups, actually, because I think what the groups uh, of, the, of, of general practitioners and hopefully other clinicians actually, some in, in time some secondary care clinicians and, and so on will do, I think what will really light their candle will be developing some of the integrated care, the services we've been talking about for frail older people and so on, and possibly in a, in a competitive manner in due course. But uh, I really don't think that the majority of uh, GPs, what they want to do is make those major strategic uh, planning decisions. Indeed, I don't think it's fair to uh, expect that of them. So, Where will those decisions happen? Oh, I'd, I'd put my money on some sort of outpost of the NHS commissioning board because the kind of regional SHA tier has, has always uh, persisted in the 60-year uh, the history of the NHS. The, the attitude the competition regulator takes seems quite important, by analogy with Holland, where uh, when the Dutch Hospital Association meet, they have to make sure they don't have too many people from the same area uh, for fear that the Dutch, the Dutch Competition Authority will kick the door in and, 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 and fine them. Um, so the, 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 uh, uh, so uh, payer-brokered provider conversation probably is the way to solve some of these big configuration mm -hmm. problems. So you ask the providers to go and sort it out, but you have the payers in the room to ensure mm -hmm. that they're not on the receiving end of an anti-competitive stitch-up. Mm -hmm. Simon Stevens. Well, on Judith's point about the intermediate tier, it's the old saying that the only two things that survive a nuclear war are cockroaches and regional health authorities. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I think I'm quoting Nigel. He, he's laying claim to it. So, I mean, we've had area health authorities, district health authorities, um, regional health authorities, uh, 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 all kinds of health authorities, and the fact is we've got 50 of them sitting back in the new structure that's been proposed. So there will be some kind of mechanism there. But I think the interesting question that we don't know the answer to is how much of it will be a result of nudges from that kind of layer to the clinical commissioning groups to get on with this? How much of it will be coming out of a 
re-energised uh, Care Quality Commission that actually takes seriously the idea that there are minimum standards of acceptable care. I mean, if you were thinking about the airline industry, you wouldn't rely purely on uh, consumers looking up the number of crashes per thousand passenger miles to decide which airline to travel. There's no third-party commissioner. There's a regulator that says this is the basic standard for airline engine maintenance, and this constitutes acceptable levels of uh, flying care. So will we see kind of a more energised uh, CQC uh, in future? That would be one route. Another route may be the impact of some of the stuff that Tim Kelsey's been talking about, namely just much greater transparency. Why is it local newspapers, campaign groups, patient organisations are not themselves rising up and saying this is no longer acceptable? And we've got, um, David Bennett, you here as, as the new NHS regulator. I mean, this is an enormous role, potentially, that might end up being... Uh, something you have to take part in? Well, I, I'm sure in some ways we will have to take part, but exactly how this is all going to work out I think is so unclear that you know what role we will need to play is equally unclear. Um, one other observation I make, coming back to your, I think your original um, uh, dinner conversation, I think you were talking about the secondary care sector and the impact of competition. I actually think the biggest impact on that sector over the coming years is, is not going to be competition. It's there and it will continue to be there. It's the general squeeze on funding, which often, uh, especially at the moment, is finishing up, in particular at the door of the secondary sector, I think that will continue to be a huge pressure. The changing way commissioning is happening, now exactly how that plays out is unclear, but I think it will continue uh, to put pressure on the sector simple things even like you know moving demand out of secondary into primary care is going to have a big impact on the secondary sector uh, and then thirdly i think um something which is often missed is is the government's ambition to turn all the non-foundation trusts into foundation trusts that's going to if they are successful in their ambition produce huge amounts of change uh, amongst those trusts paul corrigan i think if if we're to come back to the um the financial problem, the mismatch between resources and demand, uh, and the fact that people want to do that um, around integration and think need to do it around integration, then I think what we will have is... Comp uh, and there, there is then an interesting part of the discussion in the last year uh, as if there's some sort of opposition between composition and integration, whereas actually what we will get is competition between integrators. We will have new integrators coming into the system who will have the capacity to bring together this really discredited primary and secondary care into an organisation and have the power as an integrator to do that. And they will, in a sense, slash into the existing organisational forms. And if that were to take off, then that is a very profound competitive intervention. Nigel? But what we haven't got, which and the bill doesn't deal with, is we, we don't have uh, bundled payment currencies uh, with, uh, to, to enable us to do that. We've got a GMS contract, which, uh, which means that some of the money that you'd want to put into the pot is locked away in the COAF. Uh, Claire's not here. She would probably not respond well to that uh, statement. But there's a, there's a number of quite important bits of... Uh, issues about information governance that we haven't got to the bottom of and we don't have the information system. The bill does nothing about any of those and those are actually the things that we need to fix but we do need some different instruments and the bill doesn't deal with any of these I'm afraid. Can I ask one question about what the bill does or doesn't deal with in relation to population based uh, healthcare and John Berwick yesterday said it was one of the jewels in the NHS crown that we had this population base on which we could do public health <coughs> and, and um, provide primary care. I, I hear different things about the bill does or doesn't um, 
allow for the fact that those population um, practice boundaries, local boundaries, will become will become less important and even disappear in the sort of world that Paul you're describing. And, and do people think that is, is that likely to happen? And 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 does it have major consequences for the way our healthcare is delivered? I think there is a danger that if you just use practice populations, you use, you potentially lose a denominator that allows you to do resident to, to do area based health planning. So the job for the health and wellbeing boards, who we haven't talked about at all really in the last day or so, but potentially look like quite important bits of the architecture. Their job and the job of public health, which really does need uh, to step up um, in a way that. It's failed to, frankly, failed to do in the last uh, decade or so to reconstruct that sort of local epidemiological picture. So that uh, because the, the, the problem, I mean, I'm very struck by the fact that the GPs in Stafford missed what was happening because, and, and the reason is the signals were weak. You just don't see them at the level of two, you know, fifteen hundred patients. You're not going to see that. It's not something. It's not they did it wrong. It's just it wasn't visible. So how you spot those weak signals that you've got a problem or that there's a there's an issue means someone has to put the epidemiology back together, and we need really good public health supporting the GPs and the CCGs uh, to reconstruct that picture. And we mustn't. Don Bo is absolutely right. Losing that would be a disaster. So if the bill, when the bill goes through, um, will that threaten? the existence of those population denominators? Bill, it's the implementation of how public health is funded and what happens to public health as a career and whether we've actually got those people in place. The, the, Paul? The, the health and wellbeing boards and those local authorities that can actually create alliances with public health to do this, will, it will be a great step forward um, because they actually have a wealth of local knowledge which has been outside of, outside of public health for some period of time and a wealth of interventions that spring from that knowledge. Um, so it's like a lot of the rest of the bill. There are some places where I think this will be a, a, a big advance and other places that won't be able to do that for a variety of capacity reasons where I think public health may well disintegrate. And, and getting into this, back to this conversation about integrators, do we see a situation where foundation trusts such as Edinburgh's perhaps will begin to take on a kind of Mayo, uh, Cleveland Clinic, King uh, Kaiser type approach and, and start becoming an integrator? Gareth? I could see that as one favourable model, particularly in a rural area, I think. Uh, it's much more complex in a city like London. But uh, in fact, James uh, and, and his practice, Sawston, and ourselves have been talking for a couple of years about the models like an accountable care organisation. Um, but uh, we've, we've found any number of impediments in the current structures and indeed in the future structures because, as I say, if you want to have one practice that offers almost 24-7 primary care, takes on the out-of-hours service, does the urgent care, where the nurses are centred around that practice to do the community work <coughs> and so on and so on, uh, it upsets a lot of other smaller single-handed GPs and so on, uh, which is why fundamentally I think uh, GP commissioning is a flawed concept. Can I come in here? Helen Thomas. This is where I think it's quite interesting to have competition amongst GPs because I'm really looking forward to the intelligent patient, not the intelligent commissioner. I want them to walk away from that practice that's crap and the PCTs in my area have spent a fortune holding it up and putting in extra resources. And you think, I wouldn't send my dog there. So, you know, <laughs> I think it's time that actually we let that happen and the really good big practices to thrive. And that will be easier after the bill? I think so. Mind? I think so. I think actually... I think CCGs might be quite tough on one another. And certainly once we get some transparency and see where you fit in the bell curve, 
I think you're going to want to move up. One conspiracy theory that we haven't had, and we've had almost every possible <laughs> conspiracy theory about this bill, is that you could many of the problems that Andrew Lanzi actually lists are problems about primary care, mm. not about commissioning. <clears throat> I, when I've been talking to CCGs, a number of them are, have worked out that the first step they really need to do is not to sort out their acute provider, but to deal with some of their colleagues. Um, so uh, maybe, I, I do wonder sometimes, that's the, that's the conspiracy that we should have been looking for, that this is really about improving, as much about improving primary care as it is about improving commissioning. John Berwick yesterday talked about joy, and I think we, a lot of us were struck by his um, ability to find hope for the future in sometimes dark times. Um, I just wondered if people could uh, give their thoughts on how we could see uh, more joy in uh, the delivery of healthcare, both in the policy side, the primary, secondary care, the new integrated future. Um, any thoughts from anyone on joy? Penny. No, I'm quite joyful. I, I'm, I think there's lots of reasons to be quite optimistic. So McKinsey's are joyful. <laughs> <laughs> I am joyful and optimistic for the future of the population of England. Uh, I mean, I think some of the things that people have been saying around the table, uh, you know, I'd absolutely concur with, and actually really are starting to happen. So, you know, we are starting to see a bit of a wake-up call. So as Simon was alluding to, things like some of the quality data, for whatever reason, that's been hidden in big files for the last 10 years. So things like stroke audit data has been there for the last 10 years, but people haven't looked at it, whereas now people are starting to look at it. People are starting to be aware of some of the other data around things like acute cardiac services and vascular services and so on, and are starting to ask questions about that and, and do something with that, either as individuals or as relatives or indeed as uh, GPs and as GP commissioners. Uh, they're also starting to do exactly the things that Helen just said and starting to look at the quality of primary care and really say it is not fair for us as leaders in the system to be essentially leaving these very poor quality services there for patients who, who maybe don't quite realise that they could be getting something an awful lot better. So I think many of those things are, we're, we're really starting to see a step change in the way in which people think about quality of care. We're also starting to see a step change in the way in which people think about the efficiency of service delivery. So I think you know, to a degree, irrespective of the bill, many of these things are starting to happen and um, people really, I think, a much more positive sense of, of where change can improve the quality of services. Paul? Yeah, is because the crisis is very deep and very long um, uh, and it can't be dodged around um, and that means that the only way in which this service will continue is if it finds new forms of value um, and the old forms of value which is value only comes from medical staff kit and drugs uh, is not going to work in the future so value needs to be found from patients rather than them just being a sponge on value um, they need to be encouraged to actually add value to their own health care and transform the value proposition. And that probably is the only way through the long-term economic crisis, and that's quite a good thing. Alistair McClellan. Um, so it's a straw in the wind at the moment, but I do. I am increasing transparency of health services does um, give me cause for um, optimism. Simon said about you know when a local newspaper is going to start picking up on the data that's out there. It's very interesting. We're just recruiting for a new reporter at the moment. Um, and we mostly recruit reporters from local press, health correspondents from local press. Time after time, they were showing us clippings from um, uh, lead stories that they generated from CQC data or various other things. It's happening out there in the local paper. People are taking that, local newspaper reporters are taking that local data and put it out into their community. So these things tend to, they sneak in the back door, but it, it is happening. 
James Morrow. There is a lot to be optimistic about in the future. The Commonwealth Fund, as our annual report shows, we're starting from a good basis. And actually, we always tend to focus on the problems rather than celebrating what, we're, what we've already got. Um, Bob Wachter, the chair-elect of the American Board of Internal Medicines, recently spent six months on sabbatical here looking at safety in the NHS, amongst other things. And one thing he commented on was that in hospital, he felt that in secondary care, there was a learned helplessness amongst clinicians, that people felt, I can't do anything about the system. And he contrasted that with what he saw was the joy of primary care, where although we worked within the same system by having greater control, there was a greater sense of, of joy, of pleasure, of enthusiasm for what we were doing. And I think the, the final comment on joy is that actually it's, it's a quote from Abraham Lincoln in 1862, which is, I thought, very appetite. It says, we can succeed only by concert. It is not, can any of us imagine better, but can we all do better? The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our, he said, country. I would say the NHS, actually. <laughs> you know, that, that, that actually, 1862, that difficult times, challenging times, you know, that as things change and evolve, events unfold, that if we are all working together and we all have a vision as to what we want to deliver, which I think is an understanding of better healthcare, we'll get there. Well, James, you've left us on a very, very um, optimistic and challenging note. Reasons <laughs> to be joyful. Um, we've heard lots of thoughts that there will be future uncertainty, more uncertainty in the future than now. Obviously, <coughs> a great deal still to do. I'd like to thank you all very much for um, joining us this morning and look forward to seeing many of you next year when we'll know perhaps a little bit more about how things <laughs> unfold. Thank you very much indeed. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.